Good morning. It's good to have you here, and I appreciate the fact that you are taking the time to be with us this morning to share this very special time together. Even though we can't be in, in company with each other, we can share this across the TV, however, whatever you want to call it, just to be able to, to meet with each other in this very special way. It's kind of interesting because, uh, as we know, there's been dr- dramatic changes in our lives as a result of the coronavirus and the response to it. So thank you for being here I'm going to continue on with our Why series that we started some months ago, and um, I think before we get into the sermon itself, let's just take a moment to go to God in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and your goodness, your holiness, your creativity. Thank you that even during this time of this pandemic, that we can be here together through the TV and through um, prayers and still be your body and still be united in Christ. Be with us, Lord, as we are reminded of your sovereignty and your greatness and how even death itself proved to be an instrument for good in your hands. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I noticed some online ads for the kind of the reintroduction of the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's kind of interesting that that would uh, come up again, and it's going to be in theaters, and or was going to be in theaters, and some streaming sources. And I can still remember the first time that I saw it. It was with a few thousand plus other pastors at Settleback Community Church in Southern California, and especially arranged preview with Mel Gibson himself there present introducing the movie before it came out. In fact, it was so early that the special effects had not even yet been put into the movie. So we saw it before that had taken place. And the pastors, like uh, many audiences that, that I was later to see who saw the movie, after the movie was over and came to an end, we sat in silence as a result of what we had seen. It was moving, and it was powerful, and it was rated R because of its bloody gruesome portrayal of the brutal torture, crucifixion, and death of Jesus that it portrayed. It was not for the faint of heart, and nor is it now. Gibson sought to make the movie as authentic as possible and not whitewash the brutality of what transpired. And I think he succeeded because it's an awful thing to watch. And the movie unexpectedly became a box office hit. And it appears the reintroduction is doing quite well to boot. It was unexpected because of the subject matter, the fact that the only language the characters speak in the movie is Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus and his disciples in that era. It's a language few understand today. But unless one understands the significance of the death of Christ and the brutality and gruesomeness of it all, it makes no sense. Why is it so brutal? Why do we focus on that kind of an awful, horrible thing? It makes no sense unless there's a reason. And yet that reason, it was so popular, that did so well, is that so many believers do understand the importance to our Christian faith and its realistic portrayal that it helped us envision the magnitude of Christ's suffering on the cross on our behalf. And that's the point of today's sermon. It's going to respond to one of the questions that was posed to us, the why question that asks this, this, why is the death of Jesus so important to believers? What is this morbid, brutal thing that we focus on and why? And we're going to respond by looking at two passages. One is Hebrews chapter 9. 
and then we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And we will find that apart from the voluntary sacrificial death of Jesus, no one has any hope for salvation. None of us. So, let's look at three responses to our question, why is the death of Jesus so important to believers? And the first response is this, is that Jesus had to die in order for the new covenant to take effect. We're going to read some verses here from Hebrews in just a moment, but we need to know the context, the verses that precede it. Whereas the author has just told us that Christ's blood was effective enough to give access of every believer into the presence of God and cleanses the believer's conscience because it removes the guilt and the penalty of sin that plagues all of us. And he goes on to show that through the shedding of his blood, the new covenant is introduced. And we will note that verse 15 will tell us that the believer is now free from the condemnation of guilt and sin. And the author will now show why Jesus needed to die. And he says this in Hebrews 9. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. I want to make several observations from those, those verses. Number one, the word covenant in the Bible includes with it the idea of a will or testament. In fact, if you were to go to the original languages, when you talk about, a, uh, it could be the Old Covenant or New Covenant or the Old Testament or New Testament, will and testament is all part of those words themselves. And in a will, a person must die. And the death must be proven, we're told here. The, a will does not take effect until death. It's in effect that while the person's still alive, and when Christ was still alive and with his disciples, the inheritance that he promised was not accessible to them. His death is required to make it effective. But because Christ died, we receive a rich inheritance, we are told here. We receive everything that Christ possessed. It's ours now. The inheritance is not earned. It's granted to us. It's part of being part of the family heritage that we celebrate. We're told in another passage something very similar in Galatians chapter 3, 29 to 4, 7. It expands on it and says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is this, that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different than a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the, his father. And so also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. But what do we inherit? What do we get out of all this? Certainly, we're not talking about material possession. In fact, when we get to heaven, the streets are made of gold. The, the wealth that we consider important here is inconsequential. It's, it's like road pavement, dirt on the floor, so to speak. 
But we learned that we received everything that Christ possessed. And let me refer to some other passages that make that point. Number one, we are heirs of eternal life. Titus 3, 7 says this, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We're also told that we are joint heirs with Christ and share in his glory. Romans 8, 17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings so that we may also share in his glory. Or how about that we learn that we are heirs of his kingdom. James 2.5 says this, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Finally, one other thing I'll note is this. We're heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Most of you are, especially if you're older in years, you remember this movie called The Little Princess. It's the story of a wealthy young girl whose father went to war and left her at a prestigious boarding school thinking that she would be in the best of care. And the father was thought to have been killed in the war, but they could not access her inheritance because it could not be proved that he had died. And the school's marm who resented the young girl's wealth and confidence, treated her as a lowly servant and abused her regularly. The girl continued to live with dignity and grace despite the abuse because she knew who she was. Her father was found alive later and living near the school. He had suffered amnesia and minor, major injuries, but when they found each other, she again enjoyed the benefits of who she was. And so it is with us. We are heirs of a rich inheritance that we can access because of the death of Christ. It's ours, and we possess it. That's why he had to die. There's a second response to our question, why is it important to believers regarding the death of Christ? And that is this, the old covenant required the blood of animals to be shed. We have to understand the new covenant in the context of the old covenant. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9, 18 to 20, it says this, When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water and scarlet and wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. The law requires that nearly everything is cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I want to note several observations from those verses. Number one, the sprinkling of blood provided cleansing and purification. It says that not even the first covenant was put into effect without blood. Notice, it uses the term but without blood instead of the words not without death. This communicates a bloody sacrificial atonement with mankind receiving the benefit. The blood was smelly and messy, but from a spiritual perspective, it is essential to cleansing the soul. But also we note that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's a central verse here. When the animal died, the priest and the person laid hands on it, and that act provided atonement. Atonement covers the sin of the guilty party who merits the penalty of death. And the sacrificial animal acted as a substitute in place of the real offender. In other words, 
the animal died in the place of the offender. And who is that offender? It's us. That's you. We also learned that the act was intended to be messy and gruesome. Sin is a messy business, and every aspect of, it, of our lives is tainted by it. God takes sin seriously and requires a serious compensation. Because sin is against God, the offense must be addressed on his terms. And those are the terms he gave. The shedding of blood is an essential requirement for the forgiveness of sins. Put yourself at the temple in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. Just envision with me for a moment. Now imagining the sickening smell of the altar of sacrifice as the blood of animals flowed over its sides, that it's day after day, then hour after hour, people would bring their animals for sacrifice to be placed on the altar. And, and blood was everywhere. And I assumed even was even on the clothes of the priests who cut the animals' throats. It was gruesome. It was smelly. It was messy. Why did it have to be so gruesome and violent? Why? Because sin is a messy, hideous business. Tozer said of this, said the only reason that man does not see himself is totally depraved is that he is totally depraved. The point is that man has become so desensitized to the nature and effects of sins is because his sin has blinded him to it. And if we ever understand the full magnitude of what it is, we have a new appreciation for Christ did on the cross. You see, God takes sin seriously and requires serious compensation. God never tries to overlook or whitewash sin. He sees it for what it is and sees its implications on our lives and how it separates us from Him and how it separates us from each other. Again, because sin is against God, the offense must be addressed on His terms. And here are His terms. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Someone has to pay the penalty. That's why Christ died. You see, like the Old Covenant, the New Covenant requires the shedding of blood. In that act of shedding blood, the penalty is paid. Atonement is granted. Jerry Cook, in his book, Love, Acceptance, Forgiveness, tells the story of a well-known fallen pastor who left the ministry and later repented of what he had done. But no church would allow him to attend their services, and he was asked to leave everyone that he attended. That was until he came to Cook's church in Portland, Oregon. They accepted him into his church and helped restore him into fellowship. And as he recounts the story in his book, he says this, and I'm quoting, What I did not tell you is that a barrage of phone calls began coming to us at that time from irate pastors and people. They were terribly upset that our accepting of him would be interpreted as license for what he had done. I suppose that's possible. Perhaps some people would be so blind, but they would, would be wrong to make that assumption. We are neither countenancing his sin nor trying to be noble and heroic in bucking the tide of sentiment against him. We are simply and plainly loving him. A leading church official called me during this time. He asked, do you know what you've done? I assured him that I most likely did not. Well, he said, you've opened your doors to every broken down pastor with ethical problems there is. And my answer is that, Praise the Lord. If they can't come here, where do they go? Where do we refer them? If people can't be healed in our congregations, where should we send them? Someone has to be the end of the line for messed up humanity. We're not in a popularity contest. Jesus was crucified at the end of his ministry, and it was the equivalent of the local ministerial association that put him on the cross. 
The religious community may put you on the cross too. If so, we pray that God will forgive them for they know not what they do. The very brothers who would crucify you may also fall someday, and when they do, they should be able to come to you and find love, acceptance, and forgiveness. They should find a welcome and hear a voice saying, Brother, I know you're hurting. In Jesus' name, come. Never labor under the assumption or the misconception that such acceptance breeds license. On the contrary, your acceptance of a repentant brother or sister will make him strong. It will never confuse him in questions of right or wrong. In your teachings and personal life, to establish clear standards. For example, a person who uses profanity is not going to imagine you approve of such language just because you personally accept him. As he hears your reverent speech and learns God's words, and most important, he comes to love God, he will understand clearly that profanity is wrong. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in his life. You're allowing God to bring transformation. But if you communicate personal rejection to such a person, he will never be around long enough to be touched by God through you. On this front, Bonneville Baptist, we have work to do. We need to be able to welcome someone into our community or to our church who needs Christ and to offer him the grace and forgiveness that comes only through the atoning work of Jesus who died a gruesome death on our behalf, on your behalf, because your sin set you apart from God just as all others as well. This is a third response to a question. Why we place such importance on the death of Jesus Christ, and it's this only a perfect holy sacrifice could satisfy the holy requirements of God. Now, I could use many passages to support this, but let me just cite one in Colossians chapter 1. It says this The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him why to reconcile all things whether things on heaven or things on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross he goes on and he speaks to us who were once unbelievers he says once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I would like to look at three things that this passage teaches us. First of all, as God, Jesus alone is able to satisfy the holy requirements of God. The animal used for the sacrifice of the Old Testament was to be flawless. It had to be flawless, had to be perfect. And likewise, if Jesus was to be sacrificed as a substitute for us, he needed to be flawless. 
Only God can meet the holy standard required to be the once and for all perfect sacrifice that the author of Hebrews speaks about. His death was a substitute for us in that he fulfilled all the requirements of God's holy standard, something we cannot do. And when we by faith identify with his death and his burial and his resurrection, we identify with him and participate with him in all these three things so that we are made new and seen as new by God. And through his death, Jesus was able to reconcile all things to himself. It's through his death that all of us as believers are united together with him. And the world that was broken and corrupted through sin has now been redeemed and will soon be restored to the full glory that God originally intended. And finally, being reconciled by God We're made holy before God. The Bible tells us that God accepts us and treats us just as he does Christ because he sees us in him. We are declared righteous in his sight because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This morning we responded to the question, why is the death of Jesus so important to believers? And we looked at two passages that teach us this, that apart from the voluntary sacrificial death of Jesus, no one has any hope for salvation. The Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, received acclaim for one simple reason. It portrayed the brutal reality of what the torture, the crucifixion, and the death of Christ would, would really have looked like had we been there and we'd seen it as it occurred. He did not try to sanitize it or minimize it. His death was bloody and messy. Why was it necessary? Because sin is a messy, dirty business in God's eyes, and only the shedding of blood can atone for it. Two things to reflect on regarding what we've looked at this morning. If you truly grasp the magnitude of the destructive and divisive nature of your sin, it should humble you. We should all be humbled. Instead of looking at the narcissistic nature of someone else, you will first of all look at your own narcissistic nature and recognize that you deserve a penalty that reflects the severity of it. And only a holy and loving God against whom the offense has been committed can provide the grace and forgiveness that we need. And that's what Christ's death provides. And upon placing our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, We are promised a great inheritance, far beyond anything we could ever imagine. As Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. To qualify for that great inheritance, Jesus had to die. And that's why it matters. And that's why it's important. Now imagine for a moment, a six-year-old boy playing with a toy truck, and then he breaks it, and he is disconsolate and he cries out to a parents to, to fix it and yet as he's crying his father says to him a distant relative you've never met before has died and left you 100 million dollars what will the child's reaction be he'll just cry out louder until his truck is fixed he does not have enough cognitive capacity to realize his true condition to be consoled he doesn't realize the value of what is promised him And in the same way, Christians lack the spiritual capacity to realize all we have in Jesus because of his death on the cross and the inheritance that he gives us that comes out of that. This is the reason Paul prays that God would give Christians the spiritual ability to grasp the height 
and depth and breadth and length of Christ's salvation. In general, our lack of joy is, as Shakespeare wrote, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. We are like the six-year-old boy who rests his happiness in his stars, his circumstances, rather than recognizing all the wealth that we have in Jesus because of what he did in dying on the cross.